0: and uh, welcome to the latest in Natural Gas World's Canadian Gas Dialogues Pandemic Edition webinar. Today, we're discussing LNG opportunities and challenges uh, in Canada. Moderating our discussion is uh, Cameron Gingrich. He is, uh, many of you may know him from his days at Solomon Associates. Right now, he's Managing Partner of Markets and Strategy at Incorus Information Systems. Cameron's had 20 years experience in natural gas, crude oil, and NGLs uh, doing research, doing analysis, doing complex uh, market studies, uh, primarily at Solomon. Um, he's also done quite a bit of uh, expert presentation in front of both the National Energy Board, the predecessor of the Canadian and Canada Energy Regulator, and Alberta, uh, regulatory tribunals. Uh joining Cameron today are Alan Fogwell of Siri, Menzie McEchran of the Northwest Territories, Alfred Sorensen is on the phone from Pierre Day Energy, and Douglas Stout is uh joining us from the lower mainland. Cameron, I will turn it over to you. Oh, thanks a lot, Dale. Yeah,
1: it's uh, this uh, LNG subject for, for Canada has been mm-hmm. a, a subject I guess dear dear to my heart. We we did our first uh, kind of feasibility study in 2008 for a Japanese firm when I was at Zip Energy. Uh, so uh, uh, it's been a, a long time coming. It's nice to see one getting built finally. I'll introduce the the panel a little bit. Uh, Douglas Stout, Vice President, of Market Development, and uh, external relations at Fortis. Uh, He's been there since 2001. He's also served as director for Pacific Coast Terminals, Hillborough Resources, past chair of Canadian Natural Gas Vehicle Alliance, and past director of uh, Northwest Gas Association. He's current director of the BC LNG Alliance. Uh, Menzi McEachran, director of mineral and petroleum resources at the uh, Government of Northwest Territories. Uh, he's been at uh, the Northwest Territories uh, uh, for about a dozen years now. Uh, previously, he was a director of strategic initiatives at uh, Alberta Energy and a senior manager at uh, Alberta Environment. Uh, Dr. McEachern has a PhD in geography from Clark University and uh, a BSc from Queens uh, in Kingston, there. Uh, Alan Fogwell, uh, CEO of the Canadian uh, Energy Research Institute, uh, he's been uh, uh, at the Canadian Research Institute, uh, I think since 2014. Uh, he has uh, over 30 years of experience in both public and private sector. Uh, he's focused on economic and market analysis, uh, along with uh, policy development related to energy regulation and efficiency issues. Uh, he's also uh, uh, served as the chair and CEO of the Canadian Energy Efficiency Alliance and uh, the Canadian Gas Research Institute. Uh, Alfred Sorenston, he's the CEO of uh, Paraday. He's been uh, with Paraday for uh, about uh, eight years now since 2012. He's a charter accountant and of course a leader in the energy industry uh, with uh, both Canadian and international experience. Uh, He's uh, previously uh, been part of the Galveston LNG, Kittimath LNG project uh and we was the one of the first uh lng uh liquefaction facilities permitted in, in north america uh without uh, further ado i guess uh we'll get this uh, uh show going uh i'd like to uh kind of run more of a, a round table or a fireside chat uh, sort of format today we won't uh, be showing slides uh but i'd like uh, maybe alan to uh, start and uh, set up the opportunity uh, the resource supply, Western Canada, uh, maybe talk about some of the uh, uh, cost and access advantages uh, Western Canada has uh, in terms of the, the LNG opportunity. Um,
2: thanks, Cameron. Uh, yeah, I've got a, a number of points to make and hopefully this sets us up for for the discussion. So first I'm gonna talk about LNG and then I'm gonna talk about uh, the market challenges and opportunities. So in a lot of our research that we've done, it's clear that Canada has a competitive advantage in terms of producing LNG. And it's primarily because of the low cost of natural gas and reasonable uh, capital and uh, operating costs. So they're not the lowest, but the the mm-hmm. offset of the low cost uh, of the feedstock really uh, uh, covers a lot of those uh, uh, potential um, uh, less economic uh, costs uh, that you you have. Uh, so that's one thing. So Canada's in a, in a pretty good position. Um, one of the other points to raise though is that there's a lot of speculation about the impact of spot market prices on on LNG. and um, it still remains that you know roughly seventy percent or more of new projects are covered by contracts long-term contracts. So while the spot market is important, you have to consider the, the, the long-term uh, relationships that uh, LNG uh, plants will have with, with their end-use customers. The, I think the biggest challenge that we face for, for LNG projects in Canada is the regulatory challenges. Uh, a study that we did uh, just this year, looking at uh, the regulatory framework and comparing it to the United States, shows that we've got a, about um, one and a half to two year additional lag in our regulatory approvals process. And time is money. So when capital can move in uh, a, di- a lot of different ways, a lot of different places globally, that creates um, a- an additional challenge for for uh, uh, investors coming, coming to Canada. Now that, that lag doesn't include the inevitable legal challenges. And so that's just the first stage the regulatory process it doesn't include the the additional legal challenges and we see more legal challenges of these approvals in Canada than we do in the United States there there's still some yes. uh, but in Canada they the uh, uh, there's more of them and they hit the supreme court more often and so of course if you got to jump through various levels of the the legal system that takes extra time as well so that's that's something for for people to be uh, aware of. I, I guess the last thing that I want to say just about the, uh, or sorry, two more things I want to say about the LNG market is, one is, aside from the East Coast and West Coast, uh, we should be looking at, at the Arctic and the Hudson Bay. I mean, there are opportunities there. They're not necessarily easy opportunities, but there are opportunities there to monetize more uh, Canada's uh, natural gas resources. Um, on both of those coasts, so the Hudson Bay through Churchill, maybe, and uh, uh, in the Arctic off the off the delta. And finally, in terms of LNG uh, as a as a, uh, a pathway for Canadian economic development, uh, it is a vital, and I can't stress this enough, it is a vital element for. Uh, any long-term growth in natural gas production in Western Canada. Uh, we're seeing uh, a, a, a decrease in demand into the United States because of uh, uh, additional competition. Uh, so we're we're starting to lose some of that market. We're seeing an, uh, a decrease in demand to Central Canada because we have the U.S. Marcellus that is encroaching on or uh, raising their market share in Central Canada, and so. Uh, without LNG, and now we we have a, a project going ahead, so that's that should alleviate the the any decline in the short term. Without LNG, you're going to see the domestic demand uh, go down. Now, people have said, well, what about petrochemicals or power generation? Um, that could definitely add to the demand in Canada, especially in Western Canada, uh, but really not to the same level as we're seeing a decline. In our export markets uh, to the United States and to other domestic jurisdictions. Uh, So just in terms of challenges and opportunities, we're we're in a situation of excess capacity right now but I wouldn't worry necessarily about that uh, because if we're looking at any new projects they're going to come online later as demand is going to continue to grow in Asia in particular Um, and uh, uh, we have to also worry about uh, pipe gas in the European Union. We're seeing Nord Stream 2 go ahead uh, with uh, uh, gas supply going into uh, Germany. Uh, that's going to have an impact on the, the northern uh, EU states. And we're seeing a lot of activity in the southern uh, EU states where actually the, the challenge is in terms of getting gas to those markets, uh, partially because of the it, uh, increased development in the Caspian Sea and in the Eastern Mediterranean. So um, <clears throat> there's, there's no pipe gas coming in at this time, but there's lots of projects and there's some under construction. So the EU market is going to be a really tough market for Canadian LNG going forward. Uh, in China, with the pipe gas coming from, from Central Asia, it's not quite so clear. I mean, that gas is coming in to uh, western China and we don't see right now, I'm, it's not clear to me that we have a good understanding of the interconnectivity of that gas moving all the way to the coast. So, China's a bit of a question mark. India is a much better opportunity in the long term because they're going to be less uh, able to use pipe gas and if they're moving away from coal and trying to electrify the nation, they're going to need a lot more uh, natural gas. So India is definitely uh, some place to look. And then I guess the last point I'll make is, while Canada is is very cost competitive with uh, the U.S. and Australia, um, the Middle East still is a, 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 a area to be reckoned with in terms of the competitiveness of producing LNG. So with those comments, I'll I'll stop.
1: Oh, thanks, thanks very much, Alan. Uh, those, those are very good points for sure. Um, I might uh, pick up on that uh, European opportunity and uh, maybe uh, toss it over to uh, Alfred to maybe uh, give us an update on his uh, Eastern Canada and, and the potential uh, uh, for, for gas to use uh, existing infrastructure to uh, meet that European uh, requirement.
3: All right, uh, well, thanks Cameron for the nice introduction as well. and. Uh, Talk a little bit about where we're at as a project, and you know, certainly where we think things need to go in the next uh, six to twelve months. Uh, so I'd say the one thing, uh, you know, obviously the pandemic has had a significant impact on uh, on energy use throughout the world, and, uh, and it certainly has had an impact on the number of projects that continue to be developed. And when I look at our project uh, in that context. We're probably still one of the few that are still trying to push through to, uh, to completion. And the, the primary reason that is because we have, uh, Uniper as a customer. And, um, you know, taking what Alan was just been saying that one of the things I still see or we still hear significantly coming from Germany is a desire to diversify risk away from Russia. And, uh, uh that uh, underlying geopolitical reality has not changed uh, since we first uh, signed our deal. And, and if anything, uh, um, it's potentially gone even worse, uh, particularly since um, uh, what happened to the activist uh, several weeks ago or maybe a couple of months ago already. And uh, so we look at our project as one that continues to try and push forward. Uh, uh, we are both uh, uh, construction ready and construction worthy is, uh, is the new words that they seem to be using out of Ottawa. Uh, when we look at um, you know what today I think is the single biggest risk to the project is really um, um, equity financing and as uh, I don't think it's a secret to anyone uh, equity in the energy sector in North America whether you're talking about the United States or Canada is uh, is almost non-existent at the current time so uh, trying to uh, to move the project forward in that type of environment has been difficult and it's one of the principal reasons why you know we're speaking. A lot with the government of Canada, what role they could play in our project. And, and as I said, you know, the, the German side of our project remains very strong and very committed to having us begin deliveries sort of first quarter, second quarter of 2025. But to do that, we have to begin construction in the first quarter of 2021. So, uh, that is kind of our goal. And, uh, as we talk with government to see what they role they could do in in making sure the project moves forward, uh, that is, um, is probably the key risk we have today. Uh, you know, almost all aspects of the project continue to move in, in the right direction on other fronts. Uh, our supply story continues to get better. We've uh, uh, now uh, developed a full uh, um, drilling scheme to take our current $210 million a day that we currently produce up to around $800 million, which will fill the first full train of, of the project. and. One of the big selling points I think we have with governments right now is the fact that our project uh, affects virtually every province from Northeastern British Columbia to Nova Scotia. and uh, There aren't very many national projects out there, if any other, uh, currently that have such a large impact on virtually the entire country. and, uh, whether it's, uh, drilling wells in Alberta or it's increasing capacity, uh, through the Montreal East Turfbridge corridor to, uh, building the LNG terminal in Nova Scotia and its effect on Atlantic Canada, um, our project really is very much a, a transnational one. And, uh, when we're talking with, um, with government, you know, we're sort of looking at the kind of the three big areas that are most concerned to the, to the government so it doesn't fall today, that uh, uh you know centered around climate change, around First Nations reconciliation, getting boots on the ground as we recover from the pandemic, that uh um our project really talks to all three of those things. And I think probably the the one place that we're probably the most proud of what we've done is really uh our benefits agreement with the Mi'kmaq First Nation. And uh When we talk about uh, difficulties in developing projects in Canada, a lot of those problems arise because not sufficient consultation has been done by the uh, uh, proponent of any project, whether it be on the west coast, east coast, middle of Canada. That uh, uh, you can build, I think, a very good relationship, no different than our old project in Kitimat. uh, We have a very good relationship with the Heisler First Nation, and on the east coast, we have an exceptionally good relationship with the Mi'kmaq First Nation, and and i think that that really is the key to developing projects in canada right now particularly energy related projects that you have to have uh and take the time to um introduce your project uh, very early in its its development so that you maintain this relationship between uh the levels of government that the first nations have been demanding and it's my my experience has been is not really a big ask uh but it does make a real big difference in how quickly your project moves through uh The process and when I look at our project as you know years have gone by uh, the single really the regulatory process hasn't really been the bigger problem the larger problem has been maintaining access to capital and that uh, and that really is uh, right now I'd say the single biggest uh, uh, hurdle to us getting uh, to a second project getting built in Canada is ensuring that uh, the financing you know gets done within the next six to eight months and
4: and recently
3: we, um, we just recently changed, uh, builders and, uh, Bechtel is going to become our EPC or has become our EPC, uh, contractor. And, uh, uh, um, one of the principal reasons we selected them was that they've uh, agreed to work with us to maintain a, a mid-year next year FID. And, and I think the fact that they have built the last 25, uh, uh, uh or so, uh, trains across the world that, uh, their confidence in our project is really, uh, was shown by them bidding very aggressively to get the work and to try and keep us on the schedule that we maintained earlier this year. So, uh, would um, do so I say generally speaking, our project is doing well and, and, uh, you know, depending on how the pandemic continues to affect financial markets, uh, uh, in both the near and, and medium term it will really depend on when our, our project gets started.
1: Perfect, Alfred. Uh, I'd maybe just remind the, the attendees that uh, if you have any questions, there's a question box that they can uh, uh, send one in and uh, we'll certainly uh, look to get that question answered answer for you today as well. Uh, the, the excitement uh, uh, I see on that East Coast is uh, such a credit worthy buyer you have uh, on the German side of things. So uh, hopefully that will help you bridge the financing gap as you go forward. Uh, I'll maybe switch to uh, Doug on, uh, and ask about uh, uh, West Coast opportunities and uh, where he sees uh, 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 bright uh, bright lights and uh, green shoots uh, on the West Coast. Oh, I'm having trouble hearing you, Doug. Uh, I'm not too sure if you're on mute or there, how's that?
5: Oh, There. there we go. Perfect. Thanks, Doug. Uh, Okay. Well, yeah, we'll talk about the West Coast. Obviously, LNG Canada garners the the largest share of the limelight, uh, understandably so given the scope and scale of the market, but uh, we're seeing some smaller scale opportunities. Obviously, wood fiber LNG has been under development for a while at a little over 2 million tons per per annum. We have about a quarter million tons operating serving transportation, power generation, and marine markets right now. That's been on stream for a couple of years. We filed uh, the environmental assessment uh, proposal here uh, recently that would see us build three to 4 million tons at our site and uh, million tons per annum at our site on uh, Tilbury Island in the lower mainland. So we see those projects uh, moving along and there's still uh, activity going on in the Kitimat region uh, on other projects there. So we see some some strong opportunities across a variety of markets. And uh, I'll speak more to our, our Tilbury project on the scale there. I mentioned the marine market. We're serving BC Ferries and C-SPAN Ferries have been for a few years now, successfully replacing um, marine fuel oils in, into their uh, into their uh, fleets. We see opportunities to expand that globally, and uh, with uh, with Vancouver taking up a spot in the um, in the bunkering network uh, worldwide. You're seeing a lot of activity. has been going on for some time in in Europe, Asia is ramping up, Gulf of Mexico uh, announcements, uh, more announcements lately. And we see uh, Vancouver having a strong opportunity along the west coast as a key uh, bunkering hub to build out that network. So the uh, activities we've got going on: uh, completing an environmental assessment for uh, the jetty on the Fraser River to allow for uh, fueling uh, filling of bunkering vessels as well as export vessels, and then the further plant build-out opportunity that we're we're going after. But uh, Alan mentioned the uh, competitiveness issue. You know, that's, uh, that's always front and center because the bunkering market's a little different than the long-term market for for exports. Uh, you are competing with the JKM market with marine fuel oils, but the work we've uh, we've done and had done by others uh, along with the Port of Vancouver at work there sees uh, that the Vancouver market can be competitive over the long term. And uh, the other thing we have going for us, uh, you know, with the, um, the projects on the Lower Mainland, or smaller scale projects are electric drive powered by... Um, basically bc's green electricity and an ongoing push in the upstream side of things with both levels of provincial and federal government to decarbonize the, the whole uh, value chain there so we see today about a 30 percent um, lower uh, ghg intensity with our rlng uh, compared to the world average and by 2030 as the rest of these programs have evolved in the country here we see that coming down to a 50 percent level so we think that's going to play a role in the future that hasn't uh, unfolded yet today but make it more attractive as, as a fuel when you look at the, uh, the issues that are trying to be solved globally in the short term, more air quality emissions and the long term uh, greenhouse gas emissions. I think you saw Total recently uh, shipped a, a cargo of uh, zero emission LNG uh, to China. Uh, they achieved that by buying offsets. Uh, we think we have a leg up on those kind of things to uh, to market uh, our marine fuel in the longer run. but. Uh, we still have to be price competitive in the near term here, and hopefully those world markets, as we work uh, you know, Article Six of the Paris Accord, among other things, uh, globally are going to evolve to give us some more advantage. So we're uh, we're positioning ourselves to take advantage of that, and and we'd like to see you know things like the, the tankers that are going to be uh, applying the trade of TMX uh, to Asia being fueled with uh, LNG out of uh, out of Canada. We think that makes a great a great proposition, both from a value perspective and a and a GHG story, a global uh, global perspective on things there. So those are some of the things we're we're tackling on the, on the scale from uh, from the Lower Mainland West Coast.
1: Hmm. Thank you, Doug. Uh, yeah, it's uh, very exciting to see a seasonal uh, existing fire uh, look to uh, uh, operate kind of year-round and and sell into this uh, 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 kind of low carbon bunkering uh, and rain, uh sector for sure. I might uh, switch over to uh, the North now uh, and look toward uh, uh, the government in Northwest Territories representative, uh, Dr. McEachern, uh if you could uh, highlight what we got going on up there these days.
4: <clears throat> Certainly, uh, Cameron, I'd uh, be happy to. And uh, thank you, Doug, for, for covering the West Coast and uh, Alfred on on the uh, promising report on, on the East Coast, despite uh, financing challenges. So in the North, uh, you know, here in NWT, about uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, we were approached by uh, a certain company expressing interest in our Mackenzie Delta natural gas resources. These are proven reserves in the onshore Mackenzie Delta, where it meets the Beaufort Sea. And um, I say proven because the the gas was um, previously. Um, planned to feed the McKenzie proposed Mackenzie Valley pipeline, uh, which actually went through a a large amount of planning and regulatory uh, process and received regulatory approval um, early in the 2000s. But then uh, just uh, received that approval when uh, the um, shale uh, gas boom really hit the states and North American gas prices tanked. So, since then that project um has been on the shelf but but the gas is still there, of course, in the mackenzie delta and so uh clearly, there are people uh thinking about well, what could be done with this gas, how could it find its way to uh, markets that are you know uh higher price markets than what we've seen in North America over the last decade or so? and uh, so we we sharpened our pencils after realizing that there's industry interest in this gas um and the the concept here um is basically to produce this gas in the Mackenzie delta and then uh take it uh in a say a shallow subsea pipeline to about twenty or thirty kilometers off of the coast um to where you get to tanker loading depth waters. And uh, at that point, the gas would be liquefied and then loaded onto icebreaking LNG tankers where it could make its way to Asian Pacific target markets such as uh, Shanghai or Tokyo, Seoul, et cetera. this, uh, this, this, you know, liquefaction and loading facility, uh, the, the technology already exists uh, in terms of these things getting built at uh, shipyards, uh, you know, in, in various locations. Um, so it can basically be floated to site to, to, uh, to the ideal location for, for loading. And uh, at that point, it can be, you know, it could be a gravity based structure, structure and then just uh, kind of sit on the bottom there and uh we we definitely uh we we've done a fair bit of work on this, and we've also spoken about it in various venues as well and to to various companies. so there's a a larger degree of interest here and I think the interest comes from the fact that not only are the gases there, but you know our major challenge in Canada lately has been building pipelines, and there's no need to build a long distance pipeline here that goes through multiple jurisdictions multiple indigenous uh, traditional areas of of use or interest. Uh, It literally is, the gas is right there in the delta, right on the coast. It's one jurisdiction. Uh, uh, It is in the Inuvialuit settlement region, so you're only really needing to um, uh, work with the Inuvialuit and the Inuvialuit Regional Corporation in terms of a uh, a benefit agreement. Um, It's one jurisdiction from a regulatory process perspective. It's all NWT, and of course there are some federal jurisdiction elements as well. Um, so, so you know, the economics are—we uh, think that the economics are going to be good on this, with not needing the pipeline, with being right there at t- tidewater, with these ice-breaking LNG tankers already in operation serving Yamal LNG um, on uh, the north coast of Russia. There. And these these uh, Arc Seven tankers are, are proving to be uh, very high performing uh, ships, and uh, I think there's like 160 or 180 uh, of these icebreaker tanker runs from Yamal area just over the last year uh, in the northern sea route to to Asian markets, as well as around the other side to European markets. Um, Another thing, perhaps to, to mention, is that because a lot of work was done for the Mackenzie Gas Project and the previous Mackenzie Valley Pipeline, uh, uh, there's a lot known, uh, you know, in terms of the environmental impacts that was came out of the environmental assessment process. Um, there's a lot, uh, so that can be built on. A lot known in terms of field development. And uh, gathering um, uh, system needs, um, and then on top of that, uh, the Mackenzie Gas Project had a mechanism um, to enable Indigenous uh, equity participation and, and uh, joint ownership in the project. It was called the Aboriginal Pipeline Group, and and so uh, you know these types of mechanisms for enabling Indigenous participation have already been worked on before, and. Uh, we feel that can certainly be um, a model once again. Uh, there's also a kind of sister project, as we speak, happening on the Alaskan North Slope, uh, being led by a company named Killak, LNG, that's Q-I-L-A-K. And that is really a project to get around the problem of uh, you a know, previously proposed uh, gas pipeline from Prudhoe Bay to uh, the uh, port of Valdez. And, uh, you know, the the recent cost estimates on that one is like a $45 billion project and clearly uh, $45 billion billion projects are tough to finance these days. And so this Kilac LNG is looking at this concept, the very same concept using uh, North Slope gas, um, uh, liquefy it, load it, get it to market in icebreaking tanker. And their their economics are looking very cost competitive with other LNG export projects around the world. So that's the key point right now is what, what is going to be our landed cost of of LNG uh, in these Asian target markets? We don't know the answer yet. And so we're embarking on a pre-feasibility study. Uh, the RFP should be going out to... Uh, uh, pre-qualified engineering contractors um, later this month, or you know, by the end of October, or first week of November at the latest. And uh, so we we that's our goal with that pre-feasibility study is to, within a certain error margin, of course, um, identify the landed cost of LNG for this project concept and see if we can uh, compete out there in the global marketplace. At that point, of course. Um, it'll be, uh, if things are looking good, we'll be full on into uh, promotion. This is the government of Northwest Territory supports this concept um, and we'll be full on into, into promotion uh, and to seek industry uh, partnership and investment, uh, as well as, of course, the Indigenous uh, engagement and consultation <coughs> participation component. Thank you.
1: That sounds like a lot of exciting stuff uh, happening up in the north, Uh, an RFP, I'm sure uh, a lot of the attendees are having their uh, ears uh, perk up uh, with something like that as well. Uh, I'd like to maybe just uh, follow up on uh, one thing that uh, Doug had mentioned, uh, Article 6 of the the Paris Accord. Uh, I was wondering if we could uh, maybe uh, have have the panelists here highlight uh, the importance of this to, uh, to Canada as well.
5: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's uh, it is one of the keys if we're going to hit. I think our uh, our national targets here as a, as a player in the world, given given the nature of our uh, how we how we live here, where we live, and, and the nature of our industries and and so on. So uh, you know that that was a target of COP 25 last year in in Madrid that uh, unfortunately slid away, and now we've had a delay in. the uh, COP26 here uh, for this year. Uh, hopefully next year things will be back on track and we can move that forward. But, but uh, we think it's a it's a key component for us in Canada to um, meet our emissions targets in a in a cost-effective way uh, for for Canadians. Um, otherwise we have some you know we we have some things we can do uh, internally. But if we're going to keep our uh, economy going strongly and growing, I think it is. a, a you know a key a key component of this of how that comes together it, it won't be a simple task but one that we uh, uh, our politicians need to uh, with our all of our help put their shoulders to the wheel on i think uh, definitely if we're going to keep uh, keep canada moving forward economically
3: and this example speaking uh, i think it's also from um, like from our projects perspective a very big part of how we see meeting uh, our zero uh, by 2050 uh, Commitments is that um, um, if you look at Unipur, very um, much a fossil fuel company, um, has recently been purchased by Fordham, a finished company that uh, is a very much a renewable company, and the reason for their purchase was to balance uh, uh, the need between renewables and, and fossil fuels within their own corporation, and, and we very much see our deal with Unipur as a way for Germany to move more of its coal-based power, uh, fired power generation to uh, uh, natural gas-fired. Uh, they've probably gone as far as they can go with renewables, and they really need the, the flexibility of fossil fuels to complement their existing uh, power grid. So uh, um, it certainly is a very big part of our project, part of what we very much are selling to government as part of our overall commitment to to climate change and uh, how. Um, Affects trade, you know, it'd be interesting to see what comes out of um, the election in the United States on the 3rd of November. That will have a significant impact, I think, on how the international agreements, particularly that clause, if, uh, if the Biden administration becomes a reality, then uh, you'll probably see a more engaged United States, which will then, uh, I think, move that whole process forward much quicker than if uh, under a Trump administration. And I think but that, that is a very big part of uh, how Canada can remain competitive on the LNG side and uh, um, it's really good to be incumbent on the Canadian government to really push our our, uh, our view of, uh, of how we contribute internationally not just nationally.
1: Most certainly, yeah. Uh, just, uh, I guess, to further define, I guess Article 6 is, uh, is using uh, uh, foreign carbon uh, offsets and using gas for coal and bringing uh, some of those offsets back to Canada. So uh, that's still under discussion, I believe, uh, under the Paris Accord. Uh, They're hoping for some uh, uh, further clarification. And as Alfred said, uh, if we have a a change in government with a more supportive uh, carbon policy, perhaps that'll uh, help push push this through uh, uh, the, the powers that be internationally. Uh, Maybe uh, uh, switching uh, over to uh, talk about uh, further uh, uh, Canadian uh, advantages, Uh, uh, we've seen uh, uh, a lot of innovation uh, uh, in Canada and uh, just maybe a subject on uh, uh, where Canada can uh, uh, excel and potentially disrupt the LNG value chain. Uh, I I may uh, ask the panelists to talk about uh, some of these uh, shipping advantages uh, going from the east, west, or north uh, to uh, Asia and uh, and European markets. Uh.
4: Um, I I wouldn't mind Cameron if I could uh, start us off on the shipping advantage side. Um, you know, if you look if you if you look at the distances from uh, from different export uh, points to Asian uh, target markets. Uh, you know, our, our, the concept I just introduced Mackenzie Delta LNG is actually closer to those Asian target markets than Vancouver, sorry to say that Doug, but it's true. Just a little bit closer. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and far closer to than uh, Yamal LNG is and much, much, much closer than uh, Gulf uh, of Mexico um, export locations that have to traverse the uh, Panama Canal, so that is definitely something uh, that that uh, that distance distance advantage. And if you can break that ice, which I should add is is getting thinner every year as we speak. Um, you know, a couple of decades uh, ago, like back in the 1980s. Uh, you'd have multi-year ice for a lot of that route, like you know, four-year-old ice or older, which is really thick and super tough to break through. And now basically the entire route is no more than single-year ice. So uh, that is much easier for one of these ice-breaking tankers to, to get through. Um, and so clearly climate change has many um, adverse impacts. But in this case, you have actually a positive impact from from the warming climate and its help of of shipping in the Beaufort Sea and the Arctic Ocean.
5: Sure, maybe I'll, I'll chime in a little bit. That's uh, you're right. We don't have the ice. We're a little further away, but we don't have the ice in Vancouver yet anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, that is that is a key consideration and, and one we've looked at and. Our project is looking at vessels that are smaller than your normal LNG carrier, so about 100,000 cubic meters versus say 135,000 to 265,000. Uh, but we think uh, from the work we've done, we can still be cost competitive. I think you're seeing an evolution too when you look at the uh, markets around the world, of, you know, point to point LNG shipments into from large scale to large scale facilities. Uh, you're seeing more break bulk happening in, in uh, Asian markets as, uh, as LNG's uh, you know, loaded across the, uh, the receiving terminal into smaller vessels for travel up the river. Is it shipped out in truck and ISO containers, uh, that type of thing around around China in particular, but in, in Japan as well and other Asian countries where the, um, the gas pipeline grid doesn't isn't in place. And so we've been shipping, well, we shipped the first LNG exports to China out of Canada, small ISO container shipments, but nonetheless, those are moving um, on ships obviously out of the the ports in Vancouver uh, directly into China for distribution and is cost competitive with uh shipping and break bulk opportunities in China and we've seen uh, some uptake there obviously that two dollar spot market uh, affects a lot of a lot of uh, economics of things that slow down but uh, we know that those aren't sustainable in the long run so in a variety of ways we're seeing opportunities to attach markets that um definitely are still value add for for Canadian LNG and um you know we we get a lot of um I think pushback of LNG going into the world, it's, not, it's displacing wind and solar. It's not displacing coal. And we can point either through marine shipping what you're displacing, but even in these ISO container markets really easily track to where it's displacing coal and fuel oils in particular instances and, and do the math on those. So I think there's, there's that variety of different pieces that are going to play out over time here and those different value chains that, uh, that uh, we in Canada still will have uh, some good opportunities to participate in.
3: Maybe I could add from a technology perspective, probably not very much on uh, um, the downstream side, but certainly I think in the upstream you're seeing uh, a lot more move into, uh, you know, Alberta's already a leader in carbon sequestration and how that technology can be added to uh, reduce the carbon imprint at the front end of the whole process. I think that's where you're going to see um, some significant uh, um, dollars invested uh, Particularly, you look at Shell as a company that's already been very successful with carbon, uh, sequestration already in the province. That, um, uh, there is probably, you know, the, the very low hanging fruit, uh, in trying to be a more carbon neutral, uh, supplier. That's probably where Canada has a significant advantage from technology, uh, just being the fact that we already, uh, are doing it in a variety of different forms, whether it's in Saskatchewan or in the province of Alberta. So, uh, uh, you know, and I think you can even see Gulf Coast producers or new projects uh attempting to uh look at uh, uh how they can eliminate their carbon position by sequestering carbon in the gulf coast that uh, it may uh, you know the country I mean the u s may not uh, at a government level have uh um a cost of carbon but certainly the exporters. Into these so we can these key markets are having to address it. I think that's one place where we may have a very large uh, and, and uh, uh, significant uh, advantage: is the fact that we already are sequestering carbon throughout the uh, uh, early stages of the, the production of LNG. Yeah,
1: most certainly the the strengths of uh, Canada's and uh, on the ESG file. Uh, as as you you all talked about in in terms of the importance of of, uh, securing First Nations, uh, as we're talking about now, the environmental uh, uh, footprint uh, and uh, ability to meet uh, a low carbon world. Uh, Certainly uh, on the government side as well, uh, uh, a lot of uh, 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 boards now are are, are more gender balanced and, and have more visible minorities. So, so, Canada, I think, is a real leader in the ESG uh, uh, field, for sure. Uh, so going forward, I think uh, LNG players uh, have to recognize uh, the importance of Canada in, in terms of uh, monetizing this uh, huge low-cost resource that Alan talked about earlier. I, I, might, uh, I might switch uh, to a question from uh, one of the attendees in terms of uh, long-term contracts uh, versus uh, spot. Uh, I, can uh, can uh, uh, we, we uh, have a, a, a more uh, uh, I guess uh, more spot contracts and still push these projects through? I, I might uh, ask Alan to give us some background there. Uh,
2: sure. I mean, in the analysis that that we did looking at LNG, there there was the presumption going into it that that we were seeing a. A significant adjustment towards spot versus long-term contract but the reality was the opposite and the rule of thumb that we sort of came up with was about 70% of the capacity really needed to be underpinned by long-term contracts in order to deal with things that uh, that Alfred mentioned in terms of getting you know equity investment you have to back up your your project with some uh, some certainty in order to get that so uh, so that's one element. The other element associated with the long-term contracts is the pricing mechanisms are changing. Um, uh, previously, they've been uh, almost solely based on, on oil markets, and now they're changing and they're becoming hybrids of oil and natural gas markets. And 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 uh, the main natural gas market that, that uh, people are looking at in terms of price mechanisms is a Henry Hub price. Uh, now, the question about how those those benchmarks, either Brent or Henry Hub, actually get calculated into the uh, the uh, contract itself varies significantly. We we couldn't find any, uh, and maybe we just weren't able to to get that level of information. We couldn't find any rules of thumb or general guidelines uh, that related to these price mechanisms. But it's definitely moving away from primarily based on oil to something of a blend or actually almost, uh, or moving to the majority related to the natural gas prices. But generally speaking, uh, none of the projects that we saw uh, uh, were going ahead without some significant portion of the capacity already spoken
1: for. Doug, uh, would you have anything to add in terms of uh, the smaller scale uh, buyers that you were talking about? we hear a lot about the Tier ones uh, that Alfred has, that LNG Canada has, the Tier one buyers in Asia and Europe. Uh, but you, you spoke to more of a smaller scale uh, uh, buyer in, uh, that you were using uh, uh, to uh, move some of these ISO containers. How's the how's the pricing uh, the, on those those kind of transactions? Yeah, well, we
5: we've um, it's a good question. We we've offered uh, it's it's really a tolling opportunity and the buyer secures their gas or we'll help them do that and then that's it's really them doing the math when one what that competitive position is their you know the longest term contract we have right now is probably a 2 year 2 year agreement um the marine shipping market is typically and given how it's evolved in the world and the uh, abundance of uh, marine fuel oils and bunker fuels around the world that's a, a very short term you know benchmark uh, type pricing and, um, you know, we, we need to evolve that a bit in the LNG markets, but kind of commitments we're seeing people willing to make on the bunkering side, shipping side, is, is more a five to ten year commitment on volumes. So it's getting your head around that. And a lot of that then is going to be what is the scalability of your project? You know, how much capital you're putting on the ground so when you look at some of those opportunities they are going to be that's where the smaller scale facilities come in or or a facility that you can add smaller trains to and I think you've seen some of that in the U.S. Gulf Coast as well so that's matching up um, your ability to to meet the market your ability to scale capital against the type of arrangement you have say versus Alfred's project where you're doing large scale or LNG Canada you're making a multi-billion Tens of billions of dollars investments, and and you definitely need some long-term offtakes if you're going to attract that uh, that kind of capital. But we can do um, a different type of project. Again, you've got to fit your project, I think, to be the type of market that you're looking at
1: that's evolving. Uh, Menzi or Alfred, did you uh, want to talk any more on uh, pricing, or I could probably add something um, when
3: it comes to uh, I think pricing, <laughs> pricing is going at you know for since we started our project. Um, I think the two macroeconomic uh, uh, issues we've looked out there is is one of price convergence between Asia and Europe such that we look, just as we talk about Brent as the global price for oil, there's going to be some kind of a global price for, uh, for a natural gas so that you don't see uh, these wide variations that we used to see as the market began to deregulate in the early uh 2000s where you might have had eight dollar gas or ten dollar gas in asia and four dollar gas in europe so that whole convergence i think is having a huge impact on uh, on uh, long-term contracting and the second one has already been talked about is that we've moved away from oil-based indices and moving more closer to uh uh, gas-based indices so in europe it's uh uh the TTF or the national balancing point in the United States is the Henry Hub and in Asia it's the JKM price and uh space out of Singapore. And uh so that's what I think you're gonna to start to see and and what I think customers are willing to do long term contracts like the ones we have is really take volume risk but no longer take price risk. And that's really the what they see is the role of the producer take uh uh price risk and that really is why you see you know Canada LNG being a consortium of buyers uh that have all looked to move to the upstream to take uh that basis risk out of their uh out of their uh corporate risk and mainly because Asia was the last marketplace to move to more like a North American marketplace where uh, energy is more fully deregulated, and once Korea and China and Japan complete their deregulation you 're going to have kind of a world market that looks very similar, whether you're talking about uh, 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 Tokyo, London, or new York everyone 's buying their gas on a more spot to competitive pricing type marketplace. so you know our contract was originally designed for the future, not designed for the past, and uh, uh, and, but it's taking time for people to understand what the marketplace looked like in the past, does not look like today, and certainly not ever going to go back to a much more, uh, uh, stringent, uh, marketplace where it was very much, a, uh, you know, such things as destination clauses, uh, which were restricting the buyers from reselling gas they didn't need. Uh, those types of clauses are completely gone from new contracts and basically more of a, uh, you know, more of a take or pay type scenario where a customer uh, agrees to take all the volume, but at a market competitive price. So, uh, uh, so I think those are those two big macroeconomic ideas continue to to uh, be a big part of how the LNG market is uh, is developing over time, and uh, and it's kind of one of the reasons why if you look at some of the Gulf Coast projects right now that they've had difficulty um, moving forward because this anomaly that existed where you could kind of do a toll for a certain volume that uh existed because there was a lot of excess capacity in the Gulf when all these energy projects came on on board, you know, that world's probably heading it already come to the end. I doubt there'll be another tolling type uh contract out of the Gulf of Mexico because customers have already seen how inflexible they are and that's kind of why since the pandemic you uh, have seen all these projects in the Gulf Coast turn down to zero uh, because they aren't very flexible in their pricing structures. So, you're probably going to see uh, another, if there is a new wave of, of construction in the Gulf Coast or anywhere for that matter, um, more market based pricing in the contracts rather than what we've seen in the past. And, and that will definitely affect the way. Uh, Financiers look at the risk in which they're willing to participate, and you look at our project as a reason for that. One of the reasons why the government of Germany was willing to to look at a loan guarantee for the project was the fact that they recognized that the market was moving to a more um, a commodity-based price versus uh, you know sort of a fixed price type scenario. So I think those are, are two things that will have a big impact on whether where the next project is built, whether it be ourselves or anybody else is really how that project relates to a, a changing marketplace.
2: Can I ask a question? Sure,
1: go ahead. Uh, mm-hmm. tell
2: I was fascinated by uh, your response, Alfred, and I was just wondering if you could uh, sort of separate out the idea of uh, a toll for the liquefaction and transportation service from uh, price mechanisms for the gas itself do you do you see those as two separate things or a combined um, combined price
3: well, I would say the customers are going to view it you know whatever happens behind the LNG terminal I don't want to know anything about that or care about any of it so uh, uh, I do think that's really the change It's like uh you know whether I'm buying my gas from Mozambique or I'm buying it from uh, Yamal, or I'm buying in from Indonesia. I don't care about any of that stuff anymore. I just care what the price is, and that that price has to be you know, transportation adjusted for uh, um, my marketplace. And okay. so that, that's kind of what I mean by I think the whole tolling idea that underpinned Gulf Coast projects. Yeah. I think that we've seen the end of that already, and uh, and you can sort of see that's why some of the newer projects are not advanced because customers aren't interested in that pricing mechanism
1: any further. Thank you. So uh, we're running up against our, uh, our time here. So I, I might just uh, kind of ask uh, one more question of the panel uh, in terms of uh, political challenges. I guess uh, uh, we have a, a representative from the government of Northwest Territory, uh, but more of a general uh, question, the, the federal or the uh, provincial governments around the country do to incubate this, this huge uh, opportunity uh, in terms of billions of dollars of uh, infrastructure spend uh, and, uh, and long term economic benefits, uh, both upstream and, uh, and across the country. Uh, is, is there any way that uh, uh, the panel can see uh, uh, provincial and federal governments uh, uh, incubating this industry on a go forward?
4: I, I can uh, start us off here, Cameron, and then pass the Perfect. baton. Uh, so, so I think it's, I, th- I think it all starts um, with language and with a narrative. And I think that <laughs> governments, including the federal government, needs to include natural gas in their narrative of something that we should be doing as a nation that 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 they support. Um, that natural gas is part of the transition to, um, you know, clean energy technologies and, and lowering GHG emissions around the world, rather than, you know, lumping uh, natural gas into, you know, the whole dirty hydrocarbon narrative and saying we're going full on renewables and maybe some nuclear and any hydrocarbon is, you know, not even a part of the conversation. Governments need to include natural gas in that conversation. They need to say that this is a good thing, and it's it's helping get countries off of the dirty coal. Um, and there's a place, you know, you can't have 100% renewable energy uh, in your grid realistically at this point in time. So there is absolutely a, a, a need to balance that renew- those renewables with natural gas. And so that's perhaps something that has been somewhat missing from the federal narrative of late is, is that very positive natural gas message. And I think if, if, if the whole international financial or investment community were to hear those kinds of messages from the federal government that would probably put some of their fears to rest about you know, investing in some of these projects in Canada. The second point perhaps is, is for the federal government to um, uh, consider mechanisms that enable some form of government support and I'm not talking about government handouts, um, but some kind of uh, way to uh, to accelerate projects through their through um, different investment uh, funds or mechanisms um, that would that would provide a huge return on investment for any government uh, involvement. Um, so certainly not just you know reshuffling taxpayers' money, but something that definitely benefits taxpayers but does allow projects to get off the ground to that you know critical FID decision.
1: Good stuff, Menzi. Uh, the first part is uh, fairly cheap too, just uh, supporting uh, with a with, uh, uh, job owning the, the industry for sure. Uh, do you have anything to add there, Doug?
5: Yeah, I think um, I totally agree with that. And I think building on that, you know, the government is leaping in a lot of areas to the hydrogen economy of the future, let's say. Um, that ignores the fact that you need what's already the gas economy, gas infrastructure to, to facilitate that. And uh, also the natural gas, is probably the cheapest building block to, to build hydrogen from, whether you make that hydrogen in Canada or ship the gas overseas to, to make that hydrogen, for example. So I think there's there's lots of things to knit together for the longer term, because that's where people tend to push back. Yeah, this is a short-term transition. It's not part of the future when it, it truly is. I think the other area, you know, I'll, I'll speak to BC, uh, we just had uh, undrip legislation passed uh, around about this time last year, just after last year and, and set uh, high expectations with Indigenous communities, uh, rightfully so, of of how things are going to evolve here. and I think governments um, right now, not just BC but I'll I'll point across the country, are underfunded, understaffed, under-resourced in being proactive of dealing with Indigenous uh, rights and title issues and and UNDRIP and how that's going to work with industry, the resource industry among others. And I think that's where government um, could really step up is is, uh, focusing on some of those areas and the role, the key role they have to play in, in moving these issues along and uh, that takes, um, it's not just sending money out, this takes skilled people on the ground and, and, and knowledgeable people having discussions in, in communities with Indigenous communities and, and dealing with the issues that governments need to. Uh, they can then help facilitate business stepping in and doing, doing what they need to do and what they can do on this, but uh, business can't solve uh, what are government-to-government issues that need to be dealt with and I think that's still under-resourced uh, right across the country in, in, uh, in many regards.
1: And that speaks more to a wider uh, uh, business development for the country of Canada as well. It's not just uh, resource companies that need to uh, solve these indigenous problems. Huh. It's uh, every sector of the economy that wants to do business and expand in, into forestry or, or mining or what have you as well. So ah, that's a good, good point there, Doug. Uh, Alan, did you, did you have any uh, uh, anything to add on this?
2: Well, uh, first of all, just let me say that uh, at, at the Canadian Energy Research Institute, we, we try to avoid making recommendations to companies or to governments. We just put in the information out. What I can say is based on our research and our observations in other jurisdictions, those that have direct government involvement seem to be more successful than those that
1: don't. I'll leave it at that. All right. Thanks, uh, thanks Alan. Uh, Elford, uh, uh do you have a wish list for your project?
3: Oh, we certainly do, and as I said earlier, you know, I think uh, the point where the government can play a big role right now is, is and I've said this too, whether it's uh, Minister Reagan or uh, um, you know, speaking with uh, uh, the Privy Council about you know, where we thought Canada could go in energy, the underlying message has really been that now is an opportunity for Canada to be somewhat brave. That and yes, the marketplace is is uh, is not uh, uh, conducive to uh, private uh, investment at the current time. But uh, as sort of been mentioned, you know, this is a real big opportunity for Canada to move, uh, uh, whether it be on the east coast or the west coast. I think they've gotten their mind around that Canada is a country to be better off having uh, terminals on both sides of its country. And maybe potentially the north, uh, I think the cost structure might be a bit hard to make that work right now. But uh, Uh, No, there's no doubt that I think that uh, um, their public message really has to be more more inclusive of of natural gas than it has been over the last few uh, months, but uh, there's no doubt that uh, the government understands that uh, we are a resource-based economy and if we're going to get ourselves out of the big hole we've dug, we need to get uh, our resources to market. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, most certainly and uh, especially in a, a COVID world here where uh, where uh, <coughs> big investments will help uh, drive this uh, economy out of, uh, out of the hole we're in so far. Uh, it's exciting time for you folks and uh, uh, we're, we're basically at our hour mark which we uh, committed to. So I want to thank uh, all the panelists today for some great information uh, and uh, thank the audience for participating as well with some good questions as well. Uh, With that, I think uh, I'll pass this back to Dale, uh, and uh, he can tell us about the next uh, uh, next sessions of meeting gas dialogues.
0: Uh, Thanks, Cameron, and thanks uh, everyone for your participation, Alan Menzi, Doug, and Alfred. Uh, Thank you all for joining us this morning uh, to look at LNG opportunities, and a reminder that our next uh, in next panel in the in. Our Canadian Gas Dialogue series will be on Monday, October 26th, and we'll look at uh, everybody's whipping boy lately, the federal regulatory framework and how that is shaping uh, really the future of uh, Canada's energy developments going forward. Again, thanks very much, and we will see you next time.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you.